Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this LSE public event. My name is Professor Jeffrey Schweroth, and I'm the head of the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Thierry Balzac and our audience to the Sheikh Zayed Theatre tonight for the Susan Strange Lecture. Susan Strange held the Montague Burton Chair in International Relations from 1978 to 1988 and was a world-renowned leader of the field. Susan had studied at LSE and became a journalist before returning to academia. As a professor at the LSE, she published some of her most influential books, including Casino Capitalism and States and Markets. She was a pioneer in helping to found the British International Studies Association and establishing at LSE the very first graduate program in international political economy. Later, she became the third woman and the first Britain to hold the presidency of the International Studies Association in the United States. She is also the first female academic to have a professorship named after her at the LSE, and the Department of International Relations is very honored to host that chair. In 2022, the Department of International Relations has been fortunate to host Professor Balzac as the LSE Susan Strange Visiting Professor. Professor Balzac is currently professor at the Center for International Studies at Sciences Po in Paris. He was formerly the scientific director of the French Ministry of Defense's Research Center and has been awarded a Franchi Research Chair, which is Belgium's highest academic honor and title at the University of Namur. Professor Balzac has published over 100 works in English and French on security, international relations theory, and diplomatic studies, and he writes on the broad topic of grand strategy. In tonight's lecture, Professor Balzac will interrogate the use of rituals in international relations. Rituals are ubiquitous in international relations with diplomatic apologies, joint military exercises, gift giving, and global summits as some of the most iconic examples. But what constitutes a ritual in this context? And is it possible to achieve the same results through other means? What criteria then do we as scholars employ to say that an action or an event is in fact a ritual? And what difference, if any, does it make to the character, to its character as well as to its efficacy? For those on Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Rituals. This event is being recorded and will be made available hopefully as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our speaker. I will let you know when we open the floor to questions. And if at that moment, if you could then raise your hand, I will then indicate to you and a roving mic will come and pick up your question. And you may then pose your question. At that time, I would ask you, of course, to provide your name and your affiliation and please keep your question brief at that moment so we can fit as many in as possible. And now I would like to ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Balzac for tonight's lecture. Okay, good evening. Um, thank you very much, Jeff. Um, 
I really want to thank the department uh, for, for having me. Um, I, I really feel like um, I was lucky to, uh, to be invited, um, not only because it's uh, LSE Department of International Relations, but also because uh, it's a chair that is named after a woman. As somebody from a minority, I see that as something that really for me is very special. So thank you very much for that. Now, the talk today, as you may have heard, is really about um, ritual, but it actually the, the talk is uh, broadly speaking, uh, falling within a book project, right? So what I'm going to be doing here is to just take bits and pieces from different sections of the book, and hopefully that would constitute something that looks a little bit coherent, right? Um, now, the overall aim of that book is try to um, promote a more systematic study of rituals in international relations, but much more specifically what I want to do is uh, try to see what difference, if any, that makes to our understanding of social action's efficacy. That's the objective of the book. Occasionally, um, presidents retake out of office because a word went out of sequence, as it happened with Barack Obama, right? And that cost millions. Political leader publicly exchange gift, yet the recipients rarely, if ever, have the enjoyment of this gift. They for museums. Militaries rehearse joint military operations through highly uh, choreographed war game. But as a NATO high-ranking officer blithely observes, like Heraclitus, this is all play, one never fights the same war twice. If actions have importance um, in virtue of the qualitative difference they make to, um, let's say, to given state of affairs, why do actors keep performing these ones? As diverse as they are, these actions are instances of a distinctive class which can only be apprehended from the perspective of actors' subscription to a socially prescribed order. They are rituals, but they nonetheless embody certain features that separate them from ritual per se. The upshot of this assertion is that one uh, one social action is somehow encased in expressive equipment of a standard uh, kind, the relation between artifice and authenticity becomes contingent. What I'm going to be doing here is to do two, three things. The first one is to ask what do we mean by ritual in general? For students in anthropology, these are discussions that you might be familiar with, but bear with me. The second one, the second thing I want to do is try to start discussing what difference, if any, uh, ritual makes to the character of international society. The third is how does ritual actually reconfigures the boundaries that we have erected between different uh, theories of action in world politics. These are the three uh, things that I want to do. Now, let's start with the first one. The term rituals applies to both human and animal behaviors as much as 
It refers to religious and non-religious events. It can be either positively or negatively connoted. In psychiatry, for instance, ritual denotes a pathological conduct that is the proclivity of some neurotic to relate stereotypically to other people. Recent research in neuroscience takes this view further, arguing that ritual provides people crippled by obsessive compulsive disorders, OCD, with a means, quote and unquote, for coping with the aversive feelings associated with randomness. It increases a perceived sense of control. You know of people who will close the door 10 times, right? In social sciences, the reigning disciplines in conceptualizing rituals are anthropology and sociology. Here, studies uh, on the various kinds of rituals and their functions have been the main focus of work. But debates on types and functions of rituals, I think, belie a fundamental uncertainty as to what counts as ritual. That said, my aim is not uh, somehow uh, to graph controversy that have happened elsewhere onto IR. What I want to do is just to briefly review uh, these different uh, understanding of ritual by organizing them into, uh, into clusters, namely the functional and what is called the ontological approach to ritual. Let me start with the functional one. The functional understanding of ritual is Durkheimian. Here, for Durkheim in the elementary forms of religious life, the main objective is to try to understand what actually rituals achieves. For Durkheim, ritual is, quote unquote, religious belief in practice. On the one hand, then, rituals provide religious belief with its vitality. In Durkheim's view, rituals actually has two main functions. First, it demarcates space, times, and activities as either sacred or profane, or as some tend to forget, either purely sacred or impurely sacred. And it does so through interdictions. Rituals delimits the sacred. In so doing, says Durkheim, it defines society itself. Second, ritual serves to revivify and integrate the most, quote unquote, essential elements of the collective consciences. In this sense, ritual accomplishes a solidaristic function. If we consider one uh, practical example that was discussed by Shields and Young, in order to develop uh, their own theoretical understanding of ritual, they took one example that now uh, looks a little bit bizarre, but at least that was Queen Elizabeth II on June 2, the coronation in 1952. In their view, the coronation is an act of national communion which actually has a unifying effect. In this respect, the coronation in, is a sacred occasion that enables one large family, such as the British society, to explicitly take shape. It reaffirms in a spectacular fashion ideals and sentiments that undergird a society and hold its members together. 
to take the phrase from Git, during the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, everything stood for some vast idea, quote unquote, and nothing took place unburdened by power. If you want, coronation is both an index of integration and the very mechanism that begets social cohesion. Now, the interpretation of coronation as the periodic reaffirmation of the British communal values has been contested, in particular by Stephen Lukes. The problem, according to him, is that, first, the study by Shields and Young assumes that social integration through rituals evidences consensus over values. Second, by advocating a solidaristic approach to rituals, they overlook the coexistence of conflicting attitudes toward the so-called shared values within the same society. In this view, then, rituals produces estrangement rather than social solidarity or affinity. It's a weapon of the strong to subject the weak to its rules and value. In my understanding, Luke's reading is a tad overblown. Occasionally, solidaristic rituals are both overtly combative, such as in the, uh, in the Council of European Union's meeting, wherein different member states defending the same ends, nonetheless, were part of, I mean, partway on a great number of other issues pertaining to the crisis, the financial crisis in Greece. If you have watched uh, adults in the room, you'll be seeing that this is what actually happens. Now, conceiving of rituals in functional terms has led students to expand, I mean, to just expand a great deal of time identifying the infinite list of functions that ritual actually could discharge. Now, important though this perspective might be, it misses two important elements. First, studies with a functional ilk tend to give short shrifts to the analysis of attributes that separate rituals from other kinds of action. Second, the functional tradition casts a shadow on processes through which ritual is actually performed. That's why probably there has been another tradition developing, which is called the ontological view. The ontological view uh, seeks to address one question, not the function, but instead, what is actually what makes different actions, such as ceremonies of birth, childhood, social poverty, marriage, pregnancy, fatherhood, initiation into religious society, funerals, what makes all these things to be called rituals? What is the reason for resemblance? The answer, in Arnold van Gennep's word, is that these ceremonies belong to what he calls the rites of passage. In this respect, the objective of ritual analysis is to determine the basic characteristic patterns in the order of ceremonies. Rites of passage, in this view, actually have shared three autonomous phases, separation, transition, and incorporation. Now, by autonomous, I do not mean that these phases actually entertain no relation with one another. What it actually means is that the three phases are not equally important or equally elaborated. 
in every single region. Now, but why are such rituals performed in a specific order? The answer might be that the aim of the sequential approach to ritual is to identify and characterize the phases that sustain the process in order to capture how inherent dynamics actually culminate in a specific, though not predefined, outcome. In other words, rituals' sequences hatch a decisively functional idea that ritual transform participants as they move from one space to another, one time to another, or one phase to another. The concept of liminality threshold expresses this situation. But liminality is both a ritual space and a ritual moment. On the one hand, on the one hand, liminality means that during rituals, parties are taken from one place to another. They find themselves, quote and unquote, betwixt and between social boundaries that define the group. On the other hand, during the liminalities moment, the transitional person, such as the president-elect before being sworn in, elude or slip through, quote-unquote, the network of classification that normally locates states and position in a cultural space. Now, let me summarize. The ontologically oriented inquiry into ritual supplements rather than replaces the functional account. In this regard, Turner's work shows that the ontological approach can enable us to better grasp the function ascribed to a given ritual. For example, it is by investigating the processes underlying the invention of what he studied called the Indembu ritual of circumcisions that he reckoned he could come to terms with the goal of the ritual behavior. In this sense, identifying and characterizing what a ritual is made of drive us to its most relevant function. Now, my own definition really draws from that, and it is the following. Ritual is the enactment of more or less invariant sequences of formal acts and utterances, which occur in defined circumstances and embodies collective knowledge, shared experience, and shared social commitment. Ritual is the enactment of more or less invariant sequences of formal acts and utterances which occur in defined circumstances and embodied collective knowledge, shared experience, and shared social commitment. I will only take two elements of that definition. The first one, it is the formal act and utterances. The writ of ritual action is constrained by its stipulated nature. Participants are expected to act and do as required by the act, not otherwise. It is in this way that rituals contribute to creating and sustaining both a sense of belonging and recognition. Put somewhat differently, the participants find themselves in situations wherein they act as if they were mimicking an idea of what should be done. They keep to what is ritually prescribed. 
Yet, abiding by its, what is prescribed does not have to be, as is rarely, if ever, an exact copy of what is preset. Actually, the action could vary depending on participant ritual competence, context, or the ambient culture. In various instances, ritual consists in making manifest, quote unquote, what has already become an idea, a prototype. Hence the importance of the word enact, as it signifies a departure from everyday action. Now, this might make you think that ritual is therefore a conservative type of activity. But doing so misses an important point, that is its pragmatic uh, aspect. Second element that I want to uh, elaborate a little bit on from the definition is collective knowledge. The main thesis here is that public ceremonies owe their ritualistic efficacy to the fact that people brought together entertain collective knowledge. In other words, what is crucial is shared meaning. The question is, is all that happens? I argue that shared knowledge or meaning is not what is crucial for ritual. Rather, it is the experience of the knowledge that is shared. Rituals are largely about getting it. In Martin Levi Kant's word, when we get the it, we get the we as well, in the sense of establishing representation of like-mindedness with those of similar orientation toward it. As such, collective knowledge, to use that same vocabulary, is largely connected to the entry into some group, ritual, instantiate a community. My second point was, to what extent ritual actually affects the character of international society? The basic argument is that ritual and international society uh, interact in three different senses. First one is through the management of pluralism. Second is the manifestation of authority. The third one is enacting and representing order. There are others. These are the three uh, most important to my, from my point of view. First one, management of pluralism. International society is not homogeneous. It's a very diverse body. Yet for it to exist, it requires, as Hedley Bull emphasized, lubricants of interactions. That is, rules. And diplomacy, one of the crucial institutions of international society, is there to do exactly that. After all, why do we have diplomacy? Probably because there is difference. There is separation. Get rid of separation, get rid of difference, diplomacy is there. Now, but at the same time, we want to be able to use the adherence balance to mediate estrangement. Diplomacy so to speak, is the supreme civilizing institution of world politics. For the sociology, uh, Nick Crossley, in his history of manner, 
Nobel Elias argued that one of the drivers for the emergence of codified rules of interaction was an expansion of the social world in which actors were moving, and the consequence increased probably that of the probability that they would be interacting with others whom they did not know, nor necessarily share a cultural background with. Thus, in addition to marking statute differences, these rules were also means of coordination interactions, quote and unquote, in situations when we have no other intuitive feel for how the interaction should proceed. Now, the insistence on rules might bring some to draw a line between the letter and the substance. That is, real problems and world politics. Real problem and diplomacy. On this very podium, we were told that diplomacy should be more concerned with issues and less reform. Now, we academics know that it is extremely difficult to differentiate form and content. Using handshake, I have shown elsewhere that rules of diplomacy provide its agent with what uh, Ulle Jacob Sending calls non-contingent infrastructure for interaction. In fact, in diplomatic interactions, ritual makes space for the possibility that over the course of deliberation, a hidden strategic motive may be silenced, retracted in favor of a cooperative war. In neuroscience, it is shown that trusting interactions are more likely to grow out of situations that involve bodily interactions, for example, in the form of handshakes. In diplomacy, as elsewhere, physicality matters. That ritual bridges differences is different from arguing that ritual device in one culture is stripped of, of that cultural specificity when it encounters others. Rather, we can entertain the idea of an international society because diplomatic interactions have now generated a world of their own. And that world transcends but does not erase local practices. In fact, special arrangements and material circumstances might actually embody local conditions, but they are often substances that are molded by the ritual form. That form is diplomatic almost universal. However, when actors deploy ritual, they make universal signs speak to particular realities. Diplomatic ritual are therefore the encounter between universal meaning with local signifiers. It is in this confrontation that fresh associations are likely to arise. In other words, Diplomatic ritual hitch local cultures, quote unquote, and community to the global forces that encompasses them. It is the process through which the exogenous becomes indigenous. Second element, rituals manifest international authority. We have just said that rituals, according to Luke, uh, was a weapon of contesting rules. And it has often been construed also as an expressive practice of the marginalized. Women, underclass youth, minorities. Thereby, rituals are weapons of the weak. The position was actually primarily championed by the so-called Birmingham School. However, research suggests that powerful agents too rely upon ritual to build, secure, and extend the authority. For instance, 
In their classic study of the rise of modern Britain, Corrigan and Seher demonstrate that state's authority was derivative of and expressed by a well-taught string of rituals that lent credence to practices of citizenship. While guns were important tools in establishing and ensuring the continuity of colonial empires, they were hardly the only ones. In fact, works on social history have shown that rituals were important in bolstering imperial authority, and in particular making it manifest and compelling beyond direct relation usually required by physical coercion. Thus, the force of empire, quote and unquote, inherited in a welter of bureaucratic ceremonials, exemplary aesthetic, and portentous pilgrimages. Thanks to ritual, then, empire's authority could reverberate across the occupied territories without the direct presence of colonial administrations. In this light, in a Jurkarman guise, rituals are persuasive practices that enjoin a reality and an authority stretching far beyond the immediacy of the present. Studies of ritual that rely on Michel Foucault, Judith Butler, Clifford Gates, confirm this reading. In different analysis of symmetry, where uh, ritual has been studied a lot, not only summit ritualistic character allow them to weave cross-cultural spaces, it also lends authority practices of global governance that otherwise lack legal constitution. <coughs> summit is thus a specific instance of what uh, Eva Neumann calls sublime governance. That is situation that stimulate the senses, keep immanent away and its apparent infinite task. Two things happen here. One is that summit demarcates space and time. The situation is elevated to one of the highest figurative heads of global politics, despite the fatigue with summit. The other is that in summitry, individuals embody the exalted status of person or special persons, those who are bestowed with that very rare responsibility of addressing problems in the name of others, who then will have to confirm with the outcomes of the summit. Third element, enacting and representing others. To perform a ritual, says Rappaport, is necessarily to conform to it and to its logical entailment. The relation between diplomatic performance and ritual order is not optional. They are inextricably entangled. That is, diplomatic performance is not a mere expression or representation of ritual orders. Rather, it is itself a crucial aspect or component of the messages those others carry. The performer, let's say the diplomat, or any participant to a diplomatic encounter, does not only pass on more or less faithfully messages that are lodged in diplomatic protocols or book. Rather, the performer involve herself or himself in, becomes, in becoming part of that order. If you want, by being so involved, the performer becomes part of the fabric of the order that 
he or she performs. Agent can actually, agent can, we know, refuse to participate in rituals. The cost of non-participation vary. When Trump refuses to shake Merkel's hand before the journalists, reactions went in different directions. But most often, people just shrug their shoulders. And they said, that's Trump. And they went. But by participating, agents de facto recognize the canon that sustain the ritual order that their performance actually affords. In this respect, acceptance is what Rappaport calls the first instance of a ritual. The ground of acceptance are numerous, but none is really necessary for the ritual to produce whatever effects are attached to its performance. What matters, for my view, is that the acceptance is carried out publicly, not in a private sphere. It is like diplomatic rituals are visible statements not only to the obvious participant, but also to witnesses who can see it unfolding. Now, the question is, do agents have to believe to accept the performance and its internment? Now, it is true that belief helps, but its absence does not derail the performance. Even in some religions, such as Judaism, in Judaism, devour do not have to believe, as belief escapes human control. Instead, what is required in the ritual from devour is that they accept the law. In turn, acceptance is indexically made visible through the performance of rituals. If we have to translate that in the language of our discussion, one conclusion becomes obvious. Sincerity is not a sine qua non condition of acceptance. The government here is not that privately held belief which sustain or justify the insincerity or deceit of the performers are not important and should not be examined. They certainly should. But the effective operation of a ritual performance does not require performers to necessarily align their inward states of mind with the participation in the performance of a ritual order. When I argue that participation in the performance of a ritual order establishes um, some kind of moral obligation, I do not claim that performance will conform to the moral order that they actually have instantiated. Ritual is not a treaty, wherein a subsequent disclosure of, insecurity, of insincerity at the time of signing or non-conformity with the terms of the treaty may eventually disrupt the act of acceptance upon which the validity of the treaty actually rests. In ritual, the act of acceptance occupies a central place not as a shield against deceit now or after, but as a commissive performative. In fact, the primary function of ritual in that sense is to establish conventional understanding, rules and norms in accordance with which, quote and unquote, everyday behavior is supposed to proceed. My second, uh, my third and final point is what, to what extent our understanding of ritual or delving in ritual reconfigures 
our understanding of different theories of actions in international relations. Now, that terrain extends broadly. In IR, theories of action course through a wide array of concepts, including strategic action, discourse, performance, practices. Actually, we now have all of these actually are called by logic of, logic of, logic of, logic of, right? Notwithstanding their differences, these approaches refract a deeper concern with modality of actions in world politics. A great deal of contribution to these theories actually has alluded to rituals. But it has done so essentially assuming, if implicitly, that ritual is a feature of all social actions. This is a crucial point, for if ritual is a feature of social action as a whole, it remains to be known which form it takes and whether its attributes surface in any action regardless of their differences in kind. Often, students who understand rituals as an aspect of action would tend to see this aspect as ubiquitous. But the nature of that aspect varies from one approach to another. Some in particular, and despite their differences, those who study discourse, practice, and strategic encounters would consider that the defining feature of ritual is power. Other, that is, those who lean toward performance would argue that ritual consists in display. Finally, many of the above would assume that an encompassing aspect of ritual is symbol. It may be well to caution, however, that each approach's defining feature serves as a conceptual aperture into another phenomenon. For example, when performance studies insist on display, they do so partly in order to offer a handle for their understanding of power. Put otherwise, conceptual discussion around display are woven then into their view of how power operates. The analytical crooks uh, here, common to scholars who conceive of ritual as a feature of social action, is that that feature impregnates any social action. As a perversive attribute of social action, therefore, ritual and social action are intimately connected. Now, the confusing consequence of this treatment of ritual is that Ritual is seen as enjoying a central role in the organization of social action and order, but, quote unquote, it does so in a rather diffuse terms. For display, power, and symbols are not unique to ritual. The fact that an action actually does not necessarily yield symbol, though symbol is an important component of many rituals, all told, power, symbols, and display are poor candidates for defining ritual action. How many left? Can no. I? Okay. So, if you want me to come back to performance and practices, I will come back to that. I would like to just finish because these are two uh, massive uh, theories of action in international relations today, in comparison to the in competition with the strategic view. Although I, I see many commonalities, so we can come back to that if you want in the discussion. I wanted to finish uh, unusually because often I don't do this. 
but I wanted to finish with a, an excerpt from Robert Axelrod. Now, this is what he has to say, and I want to finish here because um, it is a surprising twist. The first time I read it in Axelrod when I was still a student, and then two decades later, I realized that, oh yeah, I saw that somewhere. Right? As a student, sometimes we don't notice that. During World War I, these are Axelrod's words, okay? The Western Front was the scene of horrible battles for a few yards of territory. But between these battles, and even during them, at other places along the 500-mile line in France and Belgium, the enemy soldiers often exercised considerable restraint. A British staff officer on a tour of the trenches remarked that he was astonished to observe German soldiers walking within rifle range behind, behind their own line. Our men appeared to take no notice. I privately made up my mind to do away with that sort of thing when we took over. So things should not be allowed. These people evidently did not know there was a war on both. Both sides apparently believed in the policy of leave and let leave. The leave and let leave system was endemic in trench warfare. It flourished despite the best efforts of senior officers to stop it, despite the passion aroused by combat, despite the military logic of kill or be killed, and despite the ease with which the high command was able to repress any local efforts to arrange a direct truce. Axel Roden continues, the origins, maintenance, and destruction of the live and let live system of trench warfare are all consistent with the theory of the evolution of cooperation. In addition, and this is the more important part for me, there are two very interesting developments within the live and let live system, which are new through theory but that went unnoticed by many commentators of Axelrod. These additional developments are the emergence of ethics and ritual. The ethics that developed are illustrated in this incident related by a British officer recalling his experience while facing a Saxon unit of the German army. That's how they wrote at the time, okay? I was having tea with a company where we heard a lot of shouting and went out to investigate. We found our men and the Germans standing on their respective parapets. Suddenly, a salvo arrived but did not damage. Naturally, both sides got down and our men started swearing at the Germans. When all at once, a brave German gone, go on to his parapet and shouted out, we are very sorry about that. We hope no one was hurt. It is not our fault. It is that damn Prussian artillery. This Saxon apology goes well beyond a merely instrumental effort to prevent retaliation. It reflects moral regret for having violated a situation of trust. 
and it shows concern that someone might have been hurt. The cooperative exchange of mutual restraint actually changed the nature of the interaction. They tended to make the two sides care about each other's welfare. The other addition to the theory suggested by the trench warfare case is the development of ritual. The ritual took the form of perfunctory use of small arms and deliberately harmless use of artillery. Even more striking was the predictable use of artillery which occurred in many sectors. Different sides did the same thing, as noted by a German soldier commenting on the evening gun fired by the British. At seven, it came, so regularly that you could set your watch by it. It always had the same objective. Its range was accurate. It never varied laterally or went beyond or fell short of the mark. There were even some inquisitive fellows who crawled out a little before seven in order to see it burst. These rituals of perfunctory and routine firing sent a double message to the high command, they conveyed aggression, but to the enemy, they conveyed peace. The men pretended to be implementing an aggressive policy, but were not. Thus, these rituals help strengthen the moral sanction which reinforced the evolutionary basis of the live and let live system. I guess what I want to say is that in addition to its contribution to international society, ritual is also, the study of ritual is also a call for all IR scholars to leave the trenches of our intellectual divisions in theories of actions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Balzac, for your presentation. Uh, we're now going to open the floor to some questions from the audience. So if you could raise your hand, and I will select these questions in rounds. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hi. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Lazak. Uh, my name is Rohan Mukherjee. I'm in the <clears throat> IR department. Um, I had a question. So uh, this, your very evocative discussion of uh, the First World War made me think of the India-China border and how soldiers there for decades since, uh, well, at least four decades, uh, had been patrolling without guns, right? There was a practice, a ritual of patrolling without guns, and you sort of understood that you wouldn't uh, come up against each other. <clears throat> and then suddenly in 2020, that ritual fell apart, and there was actually violence, right? So I guess my question is, how do we think of those moments where rituals are violated and the equilibrium permanently shifts? Why does that happen? What kind of consequences does it have? Um, um, yes, that's, that's, uh, that's a very good question because we see that, right? We, we see that also with, um, uh, you can see that also with the, the, the Korean border, right? Uh, but not uh, choreographed in the same way, but uh, you have the same kind of ritualistic behavior. 
it is true that this is one of the places where we see how uh, when these things actually uh, when there are frictions uh, in ritual it can have uh, consequences right um, uh, it is most of the time these rituals are already in their in their playing in the in the border playing of rituals they're already aggressive right um, it is always about showing um, muscles uh, it's always also about representation of the authority of the states um, to the extent that when when there is a friction a political friction that means not even at the border that is between the politician you can feel it at the border as well in the way the ritual is going to be played right so they have some kind of it is as if there is some kind of gradation right um, you have some kind of normal kind of ritual that they would play at the border but when it intensifies, um, when there are problems between the political tensions, then the kind of action that is done in terms of, it could be temporally speaking, or the way they would look at each other changes as well. Right? Something that I would be curious to know is whether sometimes the way the ritual is played announces the political tension themselves. Right? Not from the political tension to the border, but from the border to the political tension something that we see in politics in general. Uh, in general in diplomacy, sometimes the fact that there is a violation of a ritual tells you that there is a political problem that would ensue after that. It's, a, it's some kind of, it announces something, you know, coming. Um, but at the border, it's often the consequence of the political interactions. So it does have consequences, you know. But the only way it is resolved at the border is often, again, through politics. They don't solve them, that themselves at the border. Thank you very much. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed your presentation there. My name is Jeremy Curdy. I'm a business writer and entrepreneur. Uh, and you mentioned that rituals assume shared values and promote solidarity. And I just wondered with solidarity uh, eroding perhaps with polarization increasing, what is the trend? when it comes to rituals, uh, and what is their impact? Are, are there more rituals or less? Are they, would you say, more significant, or are they less significant? I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. Okay, thank you very much. That's, that's really a question that uh, cuts really across the literature and rituals, right? Uh, with different responses, uh, the, the response that I gave you here, where you have uh, one saying, well, it's primarily about uh, integration, the, the Durkheimian kind of understanding, but now we, I would say that view is no longer held as it used to be. Um, many people now understand that ritual does both. It can integrate or disintegrate, right? Uh, because it includes and it excludes as well, right? And uh, is it less present? I think you still have rituals, um, very, very common, at least in the, in the world of diplomacy and international politics in, in general. Um, but if I had to take an example where you could see a ritual fracturing a society. Um, it could be, we, we, we did have a paper where we studied what happened after a terrorist attack in France. And we compared that case with what happened in Norway. Right? And in France, there was one symbol, Je suis Charlie. The problem is that you are in a society where for, you know, for a couple of elections now, we have had the far right reaching the second round of elections. We have a society that is extremely, that is supposed to be liberté, égalité, fraternité. But in that society, there are certain people who feel like they're not part of the liberté, égalité, fraternité. 
So when you say je suis Charlie, uh, the consequence, or at least the reaction is, je ne suis pas Charlie, right? And in France, you have that division, right? During the, the, the manifestation, maybe you didn't sit down on TV, but there was a fracture, right? You didn't have really the creation of that, uh, what Richard is supposed to be doing, it is to create some kind of what anthropologists would call a subjective world, the as-if world, right? As if things are perfect. But in this particular sense, the contestation was so loud in France that Marine Le Pen, for instance, wasn't invited, right, to attend uh, the march in Paris. Uh, but despite that, many other people affiliated with different political parties found that they were not, you know, part of the Charlie. They were not Charlie because Charlie, they could be Christian, they could be Muslim, or they could be from different other political parties, but they thought they weren't. So in that particular sense, it shows how ritual could fracture a society. The thing was a little bit different in Norway, where the cohesion was stronger uh, than in France. That, that would be my answer. Thank you. I'm, I'm Karen Smith from the International Relations Department. Very fascinating. Um, and when you were talking about rituals and diplomacy, I, and you mentioned Trump. I did want to ask about the disruptors, the ones who deliberately, they know that there's a ritual and they're deliberately going to um, go against it. And, and you mentioned Trump, the obvious sort of one, just bullying, you know, sort of the, 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 the bull in the china shop <laughs> constantly. But I was also thinking about Gordon Brown's signing of the Lisbon Treaty. I don't know if anybody, well, this is like what, if you are an EU anorak kind of person, you know this, that uh, Gordon Brown arrived late to the Lisbon uh, summit, deliberately late. So he, he was not then present at the ritual of signing the treaty um, with all of the other member states, other, all of the other heads of state or government. He was put in another room. He didn't even want to be on the same stage. He wanted to do it in a side room. Um, and all this, of course, was, you know, he's doing the sort of the ritual, but it's in a British, very standoffish uh, way. Um, but I wanted to ask, sort of, okay, so you have these disruptors. <coughs> what then, how do you go back to the normal? It's sort of similar to Rohan's point. How, do, how does, how, does it change or do they revert to the normal? And how, how do you know when, when the ritual is um, constant, is, is the status quo, mm -hmm. how do you know then if it's, you know, that a disruption is not going to change the status quo? I mean, how do you identify sort of the process of change in these sorts of things? Mm -hmm. um, that was the, the first question. The other, so, sorry, I will take advantage of having the mic. The other slight question I wanted to ask was the difference between uh, rituals and traditions, are they the same uh, thing? Um, and also um, performance and roles. You didn't mention sort of role theory. Um, and is it this, is, you know, this idea that you're enacting, um, do you sort of see similarities with role uh, theory, particularly from foreign policy analysis? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, yes we would say already at the time, right? Already <laughs> uh, disrupting. Um, the thing with uh, disruption in ritual, there are, there are several ways of reading that, right? The first one is uh, trying to say I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not part of it, right? Um, I'm not part of it, and it's a way of expressing um, a different, your voice, your own voice, somehow. But paradoxically, by doing that, you reinforce the ritual. Because somehow, you give it some kind of weight. 
because you, you, you just say I'm not part of it, but actually by rather than undermining it, you actually reinforce it in a certain way. Because what you do, what happens sometimes in those situations is that those who are part of the ritual, then, you know, would try to make of it, you know, a matter of principle. Because they think they have to show that, you know, they're not like uh, the other who tries to disrupt it. So now, if you are able to win more people on your side, then you're able to really do something new. Uh, but if you can't do that, often what happens is that rituals uh, would just go on. Uh, something that is notable with ritual is the incredible resilience. Right? Uh, they do change, but it takes, it takes obviously time. It's like with practices, right? it takes time, um, but it is possible. But the paradoxical thing is that by disrupting a ritual, re you reinforce its potency. Because then people say, oh, there is something happening. The second, um, the second question, um, I think many, many of the things that we call traditions are made of different things, including rituals. I would say that probably traditions are a little bit larger than that. Um, many, now, it is true that more and more things that we call tradition have what we call in French folklore, and the ritual part has disappeared. Right? If you have like, if you attend in, um, in France, in Brest every year, they have this Celtic uh, festival uh, where all the uh, different groups from Scotland, Ireland, you know, Brittany come together and, and they have this weekly uh, song. Uh, it's a little bit like the Edinburgh tattoo, right? Uh, but this is more transnational. It is more about the ritual part is less present. It's more about the, what we call in front of folklore, right? Um, that's a, but it's a tradition. But the ritualistic part has disappeared, which means that sometimes traditions, uh, the ritual part would evaporate and they would still be there because they keep some kind of getting together kind of things. Right? So in that sense, that would be my, my understanding. Maybe other people have a different understanding of the relationship. Now, I would say, yes, you raise an important point, which is uh, in terms of role and performance. It's true that in... Um, in ritual, some people do have, in ritual what we do have are only uh, participants, right? They're participants. Ritual only bring participants. But among these participants, some of them enjoy certain roles, right? There are, in certain settings, like in religious settings, the roles are extremely clear. Now, in the EU system, the roles could also be very clear. If you are the president of the European Parliament for, for certain assemblies, your role is extremely key in terms of the ritual organization of when you invite, for instance, the, the, the person who will be leading the EU for X months, there is a whole ritualistic power where you have a role, and that president or head of state has a role as well. Right? So that's, that's something that, is, uh, that also plays there. Whereas in the performance itself is less participant than, you know, a division of, you know, the division of role is much more clear, less fluid. In ritual, that role could, you know, sometimes in performances, you are the audience, we are on stage. It's less fluid, right? It's more fixed. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, uh, but I'm sure we will carry on the discussion. Yes. Person on the right and the person in the middle, please. 
Hi, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, really interesting. Uh, so I kind of have a two-part question, the first being how you would really, def again, it's a sort of similar question to yours about how you would differentiate something like a ritual from some other things I'm thinking about um, that kind of go towards rituals. So I'm thinking of sort of like Eichmann and the more sinister side of groupthink and how you start to have, um, you know, would, you, would that ca be categorized as a ritual? In, and I guess, is it the same kind of mechanism at work? And then in that vein, you're, you're um, mentioning the idea of ethics um, as to the role of, um, yeah, in, the, in your World War I account. I was interested in, in how, how do you sort of wed uh, rituals with the concept of ethics, or for that matter, something like, um, you know, Nazi Germany with Eichmann, how do you sort of wed um, those those two concepts, to, to me, they're a bit like at odds with one another. Um, and I guess the second part of my question is really, in that sense, how, where do you see rituals coming from? Are they, is there like a role of agency there? And to me, there kind of has to be if there's ethics at play. So I, yeah, I guess that's, um, is it a sort of dialectic or, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, the first question is, when, how do I know that, I, that this is a ritual? Yeah. How do I identify that something? That's why I tried to give you a definition that I thought probably was insisting more like uh, on the forms of action than on the content, right? Um, with that content where you have what I talk about, like a prescribed uh, enactment of, of action, but, you know, uh, embodying collective knowledge, uh, you know, and commitment, share mutual uh, commitment. For me, that, and that touches on your other part of the question, where is the ethics or the, what I prefer to call here the, the normative commitment, right, involved in a ritual. For me, that's very important. If you go to a, um, let's say you, you go to a theater, right, and you, you're there enjoying your time, and, you know, people are having uh, something on stage, playing, I don't know, let's say Omer, okay? And when you go back home, well, it was a good, you know, it was a good show, right? And it might stop there. But a ritual has something different, which is that by participating in it, you also, there is some kind of implicit commitment that you would behave as the ritual stipulated beyond the ritual. That's, that's something which is very strong. And that's why it's often a little bit disturbing if somebody participates in a ritual and then does completely otherwise, even when the ritual is over, right? And that's why we do have like what we call diplomatic incidents sometimes. Because if some people, when they're doing things, they do it very well, and then off, you know, the record, they do something, as it did happen to Boris Johnson, uh, right? And you do something which is completely out of that protocol, then you create what we call diplomatic incident because there is an expectation of you behaving as the ritual stipulates, right? Even if you're no longer in that ritualistic interaction. Now, where do they come from? Well, this is a long story, right? There are more people who've done that better than I can actually attempt to do. Um, but one of the most convincing works I've read on that in the origins and how it works is really Roy Rappaport's uh, work on ritual. 
but for him, it's much more linked to religion. Um, but I think what he says uh, is close to the following. Ritual is really what makes for him, right, is what actually at a certain point made human human, right, by, um, by being able to have this representational and non-representational aspect of our living together, um, by separating time and space, uh, all these kind of things that we, we now, we, without them now, sometimes we feel a little bit lost, right? So these are things that make us human. And that's why probably at certain point, individuals started to create them. Because it was a way for them to just, you know, try to live a very difficult life. <laughs> that's a, how to go through this, uh, this life. Well, ritual was a way of doing it. And that's why probably for him it is associated with religion. But in my view, you don't really need that argument. Um, because again, religion can take different understanding, but just what makes us human probably is that there is, there is ritual. Yeah. Thank you for this talk. I had so many questions. I'm going to try and make sense. Um, I'm Kira Hui. I'm a fellow in international relations here at Edison. Uh, we've had quite a few questions about disruption, so I'm going to ask a question about reproduction, uh, and in particular about elite reproduction. And I'm asking it from the perspective of diplomatic studies, uh, international society, um, and India in particular. Um, and I was very intrigued to hear you mention Norbert Elias, and of course what comes from his reading is that international society and how it develops is not only racialized, it is also classed, right? So the development of taste and manners and the exclusionary purposes that rituals serve. Um, and you mentioned that I suppose in a sort of imperial setting as a historical example, um, if you have conversations with um, currently serving Indian diplomats, the way that they talk about what they call petty rituals of, of international diplomacy is very much that in order to find recognition in international society as the representative of post-colonial nation, you have to have this over-accentuated performance of diplomatic protocol, uh, the right kinds of wine and cheese, the right way of slant of speech, cultural references. And what this does is not only that there is a certain sort of, obviously there's a clearer post-colonial lens to this, right? Um, it's also that upper caste, upper class, and male Indian diplomats get sent to the most prestigious postings in Geneva, in New York, because the only way for members of those countries to find recognition in international society is to conform not only to the sort of national hierarchies, but the racialized and classed and gendered expectations. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit, not just to the sort of power that expresses itself in rituals in terms of which countries have power, but also the sort of classed, uh, racialized, and gendered aspects of rituals. Yes, very good question. Um, now, you went from... Uh, I think your question touches more on protocol as a form of, as a subclass of ritual, right? Where that is really very present, right? The issue of distinction, to use a Bourgeoisian concept, right? It is about distinction, but it's also about what is, uh, what we tend to forget when, when Bourdieu talks about uh, habitus, he talks about all these little things that we often think are not consequential, but actually are in, could be important in certain contexts, right? Which means, 
if you haven't acquired these things within the context of your family or education out of the family, you find yourself in trouble, right? Because the protocols and the way it's interacted is some kind of, it's a, it's a grammar in itself, right? And if you don't understand and don't master that grammar, people wouldn't say anything, but they wouldn't think less, right? They do, there, are, there are ways of interacting with you that would change, right? So that's very important. And, uh, and it is true that in that sense, protocol could be one of the ways of re-establishing hierarchy. Right? Protocol was supposed to suppress hierarchy, but actually it does establish hierarchy. If you take the rules of precedence, it is hierarchy, right? So sometimes when I hear people, oh, protocol is there to make us equal, yeah, okay, good, but there is precedence, right? So that's hierarchy. Uh, and the same goes for you with uh, in interactions in terms of food, right? Um, where you sit at the table matters, right? That's that's hierarchy as well, right? And it is not spoken hierarchy, but it, it is embodied hierarchy. In that sense, yes, you're right. It could be a way of creating uh, different distinctions and, and again, reestablishing some kind of division. And some people are more entitled to because they have these kind of distinctive habits that allow them to feel at ease in that context. But the good news is, it can be learned. Um, thank you, Professor, for your presentation. So I'm Hong Lei from IR department. Um, and uh, as you're talking about the ritual, you talk about how it interacts with diplomatic relations, especially, um, for example, when political leaders, they do handshakes with, with each other. But because of COVID-19 pandemic, where face-to-face -face interactions is not that um, as likely as before, so in that sense, we just think the rise of digitalization of diplomatic relations brings something new to rituals. Thank you very much. Okay. That's, that's a good question. I'm sure my student of diplomacy in the class know this question. Uh, so thank you for it. Uh, we actually today we're talking about digital diplomacy uh, as we did yesterday as well. So there, is a, there have been some, luckily we, we really on, on safe ground here. There are people who've started to study this thing and see the consequences. Um, so there are studies that show uh, that, that's what I say at a certain point, that physicality did matter in diplomacy. There are things that could be solved online. And because they're technical, there is no other things, right? But many things in diplomacy are not only, even things that we, we might believe are technical, you know, takes lots of body language, um, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's something that the screen doesn't actually you know, convey. Um, there are certain things that are very symbolic, the screen, you know, sometimes even the colors that people might, uh, might try to put on, and, you know, uh, the screen doesn't always give you know, a, 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 an exact you know, shade of color that you, you wanted to. I've seen some people, they, they have a background, they wanted to symbolically show that on screen, but actually the color went completely different. So it completely misfired. So that's something that shows you how digitalization, you might say, well, with technology, maybe one day we will have exact colors and all this. But the rest, uh, the symbolic, the interactive part, it's completely different. And again, many colleagues who've been working, like I would say uh, Wheeler and uh, Marcus Holm have worked on face-to-face -face diplomacy, for instance, they show the difference that it makes. 
right? They show how this, the difference being in the same room uh, versus just giving a phone call, for instance, um, it, it is completely different. And they show that based also on the same kind of things, based on neuroscience, uh, uh, new research, uh, it does make a difference. And the, what it teaches us is that some of the intuition that anthropologists had in the 80s actually are being confirmed by neuroscience. Right? And this is very interesting because, again, and that's again a, an area of interaction, right? Showing how um, uh, social sciences and natural sciences actually can, can interact productively. And this, the, the, the field of ritual is definitely a field where that interaction could, could yield uh, interesting results. So there, is, there are differences. To the extent that now some diplomats don't even want to be online. Perhaps I can ask a question then if you don't mind. Um, so you know, when you chair an event, what you often do is you, you read up on things and so then you see these things being more prevalent, like rituals. And in thinking about what you said today, I think about it in terms increasingly about audience costs rather than some of the things that you were discussing, which were much more sociological, based in neuroscience. And I'm struck by the recent interactions between, or the first personal interaction when he was president between Biden and, and Xi in Bali. And there was a lot of emphasis put upon who would stand where and who would be the one on the left when photographs are taken, which is the position of strength because you are facing outward to the audience in the way that I am. And you extend your hand to the other individual, like. Professor Balzac, who then is forced to turn his, towards me and is in a position of, of weakness because he's forced to extend his hand this way. And in this particular incident, if you've seen the photographs, uh, Biden is the one who stands on the left and shows the position of strength, and she is forced to turn awkwardly. And the way that they reconciled these two positions between the American and the Chinese was that while Mr. Biden would be on the left, Mr. Xi would be on the right, Mr. Biden would be forced to walk up to Mr. Xi and therefore extend his hand in that way, which relates to a couple of things, which is one, how do audience costs feature in these framework of rituals that you're thinking about in terms of how different individuals on the international stage may be seeking to signal belonging to different traditions, Mr. Mm -hmm. Biden to his audience, Mr. Xi to his, but also relating to Kira's earlier question, which is how do we think about reconciling different types of rituals or protocols. Mm. So in the Chinese tradition, for instance, the fact that Mr. Biden had to walk up to Mr. Xi shows Mr. Xi being in a position of strength relative to Mr. Biden. And so this is why they were, this is how they were able to reconcile these different positions. Mr. Biden is able to extend the position of strength in the handshake, but he's forced to walk up to, to Mr. Biden, uh, Mr. Xi, who's in a position of strength because he's waiting for uh, the, the visitor, if you will. So the two questions would be about you know, think, using this as a platform for thinking about audience costs and how do we think about rituals signaling to different audiences, but also how do we reconcile different you know, cross-cultural uh, types of rituals on the international system, and, and when we do so, how often are we successful in doing that in the way that hopefully Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi were in, in Bali? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the trickiest part of, despite the fact that there is some kind of what is called by IRS called a thin diplomatic culture, right, where there are things that are shared, right? But there are also things where uh, many rituals actually are, the, that's where you have the creativity of rituals, right? Uh, where ritual becomes a compromise, 
Right? It's, it's a compromise where you don't exactly have exa what you wanted. It's not your top choice because I'm sure Biden would have preferred to stand there and wait for Mr. Chi coming and then having also the most comfortable position in shaking hands. But you can't have it both ways, right? So that's, in that sense, rituals becomes a place where diplomatic compromises are also constructed. And if, if that argument makes sense, it means that through these compromises, actors are somehow contributing to building a civilized international society. Because they have found a way, despite the cultural differences, to interact by reducing probably the cost. There are still costs, but they're not to the extent that they would have been if one of them had had the two. Right? Mm. So that, that would be my, my answer. Yeah. And these are moments when we see these new rituals emerging at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. Hear me? All right, thank you. Hadrian uh, Saperstein, the PhD, uh, PhD student in the uh, IR department. Um, I, I focus on Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, when we use the word ritual, right, it's a heavy, quite a heavy loaded word. It tends to bring things like cosmology, right, or use the word religion, but in Southeast Asia, we wouldn't necessarily use religion. Uh, we'd use a word like cosmology, um, metaphysics, right, and mysticism. But here in this speech, it seemed like almost like a secular version of what I tend to hear vis-a-vis -vis rituals in IR in Southeast Asia. Can you maybe discuss a little bit why I'm not hearing these kinds of the same language vis-a-vis -vis rituals. Yes, that, that's a good question. Probably that's a matter of the fact that probably in the Western world we're living in a secular society uh, and that ritual has been progressively somehow severed from those religious roots, right? Uh, in the Geochemian uh, thought, for instance, the relationship with religion is extremely clear, right? And, but that, in the discipline, has been progressively seen as a problem because there are great many rituals that has no reference to any entity that is beyond human beings, right? Because in religion, uh, most of the time, the not most of them, in, in many really monotheist religion in particular, there is a reference to, you know, an entity that is, you know, beyond, beyond the human interaction. And we refer to that entity in a ritual. The ritual is therefore played, or at least enacted, not only for us, but in relation to something that it transcends our own life here. In a secular society, it becomes difficult to do that. Now, in Asia, I don't know, but I know one of the places where I spent at least, at least one year in Australia, you have aborigines, for instance. Their way of speaking about ritual would be very, would also be about cosmology, right? And they, they would be talking about some lines and these kind of things, but then rituals are connected to that. Um, but in the same society in Australia, if you talk to other people who are probably not subscribing to the song lines, you know, uh, cosmology, they would be using the language that, that is much more secular understanding of ritual. And in that country, the two coexist. In, even in, in Western world, they, they coexist, right? But the fact that the world is much more, the Western world is becoming more and more secular means that the non-religious rituals are more important. But now, and I would end up there, but not closing the answer completely, but 
The fact that we have ritual for some is interpreted as some kind of remnants of our religious character. Right? So some people would say that the fact that we still practice rituals is a way of, you know, although we call them secular rituals, but they actually somehow the sequel, some kind of sequel of what we used to do as religious people. So religious, they, they might be non-religious ritual, but they connect us to a religious uh, kind of behavior. Okay, and, and with that I will both to use tonight's language, accept and sincerely enact the ritual of thanking you. <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. For the opportunity to listen to this wonderful lecture. Thank you for joining us this term as the Susan Strange Visiting Professor. Thank you, the audience, Thank you. For, for coming out this evening to listening to us. It's been a wonderful pleasure listening to you, Terry. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>